or what will your answer be? Take your Bibles, please. Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Looking out this morning, I do see quite a few holes in our audience. Uh, we've still got some folks out with the flu and some other ailments, but uh, it's good to see everybody that is here. We have many who have overcome the flu, and uh, you're back with us this morning. Good to see you back. We've had whole families out, but now some of those families are starting to come back in bit by bit, and it's good to have that, but we still have, as I said, many still out. Um, we have been in the book of Ecclesiastes on Sunday evenings, and the lesson this morning I thought would be very appropriate for everyone. Sometimes our audiences on Sunday evenings are a bit different than Sunday mornings. And especially for the young people here this morning, I thought this lesson would be very appropriate and needed. So we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 this morning. And um, there is a time for everything. So hope that you have your Bibles there and ready to study. It's good to see everybody. As I said, we do have visitors. Thank you for being here. We really do appreciate your presence. And if you have any questions at all, about anything that you hear, anything that you see, please let us know. And I'd be glad to sit down with you if you have any questions you'd like to ask me. And, and do what I can to give you a Bible answer for the things that I say, for the things that I do. And uh, we want to know what the Word of God teaches about everything. And follow that, and that alone, nothing else. So, with that being said, the wise man says to everything there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. We've talked about the emphasis of the book and everything that we look at in the study of Ecclesiastes we must remember the main point of the book the the theme is regarding things under the sun that is things that are earthly things that are material all things that are material are temporary and in the overall scheme of things everything that is material is worthless in the overall scheme of things everything that is material is worthless you can't take it with you when you go it's going to wind up being worth absolutely nothing when you stand before the lord on the day of judgment and you had your bank account when you left this earth you had a, in your bank account 10 billion dollars how much is that going to be worth to you at that moment not one single penny is going to be available it's all gone it is worthless so the main point of the book is the importance of serving god throughout life and if you don't serve God in this life, you have wasted it. Let's understand that. We talked last time about the quest for satisfaction. And Solomon goes through point by point certain things that there is no real satisfaction in anything under the sun. Not an amusement sort of lights. All right. Amusement parks are fun for the moment. But after you go and you've seen it, you've done it. And you leave it, it's in the history books. It's past. And it has no lasting value, kind of like cotton candy. It has no lasting value to it whatsoever. That same thing is true with your video games. Yeah, Justin looked up when I said video games. I figured he would. Boing, that little head looked up right at me. Video games. You're not going to get any lasting satisfaction out of that. Can I be found in wine? Or in the finer things of life, is really the idea in chapter 2 and verse 3. Or, it cannot be found in your work. It cannot be found in the things that you accomplish by your work. All of the things that you may gain. Solomon, in fact, goes on in verses 17 and following of chapter 2, and he points out, oh, I hate life. Because look at all that I've accomplished. Look at all that I've gained. Look at what I have done with my life. And now I'm fixing to die, and I'm just fixing to have to leave it to somebody else. And who knows whether that person is a fool or not. He may squander everything I've ever done. And that's exactly what happened. Everything that you work for in life is not going to give you lasting satisfaction. You cannot, be, cannot find satisfaction in women, in the opposite sex. You can't find it. You can't find Satisfaction in wisdom itself, philosophies of men, uh, wisdom of men. You can't find. You may be the wisest person under the sun. You may know 
all of the answers to all of the physiological problems and things that may present itself, uh, but it's not going to give you everlasting satisfaction. So that brings us then to chapter 3, and there is a purpose and order for everything under the sun. We are subject to things beyond our control. The rain this morning, you couldn't control that. Some of you wanted snow, you can't control that either. Some of you hate the snow. You can't control it. If it happens, it's going to happen. There are many things in this world that are completely out of our control. God makes everything beautiful in its season, and there is a purpose for everything that is accomplished that is done under the sun. And He does want us to moderately enjoy the finer things, the good things that He has given to us. He wants us to enjoy those things, but we must realize, listen, it is not us who are in control, it is God who is in control. This is the primary lesson. This is the main point that I want us to get out of our study this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon says, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to gain and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task that which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work, of God, work that God does from the beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before Him. That which, is, which has already been and what is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. I'm just kind of going back and, and looking at this and explaining some of these things, and drawing the main points, and, the, and, and the, the important, very important lessons out of this text for us. Um, I'm going to begin back in verse 1. There is a season. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose, and we could get bogged down in all of the explanations of what each term means, but I do think it's important that we understand these three primary terms. First of all, the season has a reference to that fixed, definite portion of time, that is inclusive of a bunch of points of time within it. For example, we have spring, summer, fall, winter. For men, it's more like baseball, football, basketball, and hunting season. You know, you break things up into seasons. And that's the way you enjoy life. Everybody enjoys the spring, right? It's the time when everything begins to bloom and everybody, including Ponchatawney Field, has been waiting for an early spring. And we thought it was coming until now it's cold and rainy and... If you looked at the radar this morning up in Fayetteville, there's a lot of snow being on the ground overnight. Uh, we think that spring's about here. but Well, the next thing you know, though, it's going to be summer. It's going to be hot and humid. You know, that's one thing the meteorologists will always get right. If they're, if they're meteorologists in Arkansas and they say it's going to be hot and humid this summer, they're going to be right. It's going to be hot and it's going to be humid. And then you have fall. When all the leaves that came on in the spring, they fall off the trees, it begins to cool off. Yeah, that's one of my favorite times of the year. Then you have winter and everything dies. It's just the way life is. And within each season, you have different points of time. A particular point in which a thing may be done or begun, 
And everything that is done, there's a purpose, there's a reason, there's a cause. In regard to purpose, the term in NIV is translated activity, and that's probably more appropriate for every activity, everything that is done under heaven. There is a time, there is a season, there is a time for everything that is accomplished, everything that is done. And the overriding idea is that the divine providence has arranged these things to be as they are. There is an order for everything, and we see that order. And as we stand back and we look at that order, I'll tell you what we're going to see. We're going to see organization. We're going to see divine providence. And we're going to be easily able to say, this did not happen by mere chance. This could not have been an accident. Impossible. God is indeed over all, and if we are honest with ourselves, and if we are honest with the things that we see, we will know that there is a God. First and foremost, that point should be screaming at us. Things that are achieved in life, though, they all, whether it be wisdom, wealth, success, happiness, the things that he talked about in chapter 2, all the things that people seek after to find their satisfaction in life from. These things, none of them are completely within our control. Not within our hands to make the decisions as to whether these things will bring satisfaction and be successful for us or not. There are, there are circumstances that are completely out of our control. They are contingent upon external circumstances that we have no control over. Our life, if you stop and think about it, our life is made up of a series of events and activities, things that we, the, that we do, things that are done to us. And how many of these things are completely outside of our control? Time is a very important element of life. And what's interesting is, you look at all of the successful people in the world, past and present. You can think of the most successful person in your view, in your understanding of the way things are, in your perception of successful. You know, every day, that person has the same amount of time as you do. Every day. It's the same. For them... They have just as much time, it's a matter of what they do with that time. But they are bound by that same amount of time. We don't have any control over that. We, don't have control, we do not control how much time we get in a day. It is what it is. The limitations that we may have, that we are born with, or that we acquire after we are born, those limitations are... We have to deal with them. We cannot control many times what happens to us. The events and things of life, we don't control these things. And we need to understand that. In fact, in the Hebrew manuscripts, in verses 2 through 8 of the, these things that, that happen in our lives that Solomon mentions, they are printed in two parallel columns so that the contrasting times are clearly juxtaposed to each other. I mean, it's clearly a series of contrasts that we all, I think, understand. There are 14 pairs of contrasts, 28 things mentioned in this series. And these circumstances, both external and internal, are for the express purpose of telling us, teaching us, informing us we don't have control over so many things in our life. Solomon begins by saying there's a time to be born and a time to die. As though we did not know that. Well, of course we know that. We understand that. But how many of us pretend as though we will never die? And we live our lives that way. We live our lives as though we will never reach the end of our time. Completely ambivalent to the things that are going on around us that are important, that are most essential, the spiritual things in our life, and we just live our life as though we're never going to face our Creator and be accountable for the things that we do. I want everybody here this morning to understand 
Yes, you're going to die. There was a time that you were born, you came into this world, and everything that happens to us, by the way, everything that we experience under the sun takes place between these two points. We are born into this world, and we will eventually die. Can't control the birth, you cannot control your death. Well, I guess some people try. They can take their own life. That is one of the saddest things that exists under the sun. Is people become so despondent that they would take their own life. You will have to give an account to your creator for the self-murder that you commit. But death is certain. And generally speaking, we have no control over that. Some people do everything they can to make sure they live a long life. They get up and they take their, they take their multivitamins. They eat right. They exercise every day. They do those things that they have been told will enhance a longer life. And for some... They do live longer. For others, they live much less. It may have some effect, but not much. We're still going to die. We don't have control over these things. So Solomon's getting this in front of us. Look, beginning with these two opposites, a time to be born and a time to die, you don't control those things. Everything that happens in between, in reality, there are so many things you absolutely have no control over. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. Of course, maybe you reference to harvesting, but more than likely it seems that it's talking about cutting down trees, clearing land to build. And, you know, everything has a beginning and an end, including this physical universe. Everything is going to be plucked up. God planted it. God is eventually going to pluck it all up. It's all going to come to an end. There is the beginning and there is the end. Solomon says there's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to butcher livestock. There's a time to execute criminals. There's a time to protect your family from intruders. And then there's a time to heal. The other night on Live PD, there was a neighbor who was threatening his neighbor, two neighbors in a squabble, and the guy charges the one neighbor and the neighbor shoots him. And after he shoots him, he rushes to him and he begins to administer CPR, trying to keep him alive till the, till the ambulance gets there. He protected himself. When the threat was removed, he begins to try to save his life. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. And sometimes, you know, we, we are forced to do things that we would not normally do or want to do. We certainly do not want to do these things. But sometimes these things are forced upon us. There's a time to break down and a time to build up. There's a time to remove old dangerous structures. Because they are indeed dangerous. There are times to take things that are, that are old and replace them with that which is new. And sometimes we have these feelings, this attachment to things and places, and we don't want to see those things destroyed. Landmarks, memories are involved in these things, and we just hold on to these things while they continue to rot and fall down. And we're not willing to break them down so that we can build up again. So there's a time to break down and there's a time to build up. Jeremiah 18 applies this principle to nations. And God breaks these nations down and He builds these nations up. There's a time to weep and there's a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Kind of through these four things together. And because they are related and similar, we want to feel good all the time. We want to be happy, right? We want to avoid everything that is negative, everything that is discouraging or even depressing. 
We want to do away with anything that might bring us sorrow. But tragedy is something that happens in life. You can't get around it. You can't avoid it. It's going to happen. Sorrow is going to fill the heart. Tears will fall. There's no doubt, no question about it. It's just a part of life. We have funerals on one hand and we have weddings on another. Most of the time, and I know this is not the case in every instance, but most of the time weddings are supposed to be a place where there's a lot of happiness, right? A lot of joy. A beginning of the new life together of, a, of two young people. And then on the opposite extreme you have funerals where you're going to say goodbye to someone that you have loved who has passed away. You know, you go to chapter 7 and verses 2 and 3, and the wise man there says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Why? Because we will take it to heart. We're, our lessons are much more learned and easily, more easily receptive to lessons learned during times of sorrow. We're more reflective. But whether we weep or we laugh, we rejoice or we sorrow, we ought to be there for one another. But there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The word dance here does not mean and does not have a reference to sexually implicit dancing together of males and females. Lasciviousness is not in Solomon's mind here, that's not what he's talking about. It's simply to dance about, to sleep or skip about a natural response of joy. When you are excited about something, you jump up in the air. When your favorite football team scores the winning touchdown, you jump and you leap and you scream. You know, I, I'll never forget that um, the miracle on Markham is what they call it. I know it's not a miracle, but that's what they call it. Um, how many years ago was that? Arkansas beat LSU. Matt Jones threw that pass, and DeCorey Birmingham caught it in the corner of the end zone with just a few seconds left. Arkansas beats LSU. LSU was number one in the country at that. No, they wasn't number one, but they were up there. It was, they were the SEC champions, but, man, or that, that game was for the SEC championship, wasn't it? They were really good that year. Man, that was an exciting moment. But it didn't last long. We just got killed a couple of weeks later in the SEC championship game by Georgia, I believe. If my memory serves me right, we got creamed. But that's the way it goes. But that's the idea of dancing here. It's not couples dancing together in some illicit, to some illicit rhythm. It's, uh, it's spontaneous, unrehearsed, exuberance resulting from great physical victory. Or some festive occasion is the idea. There's a time that we are to be excited. There's a time that we are to be happy. And there's a time to mourn. You know, many times though we are sorrowful or extremely happy over completely the wrong things. The things that excite us the most really shouldn't excite us the most. And the things that cause us the most sorrow really should not be the cause of our greatest sorrow. Um, we ought to be most sorrowful over our sins and over the lost status of those whom we love. That should be our greatest sorrow. And our greatest joy should be over the lost sinner who comes home, over the one who is lost, who is saved, our efforts that we put into spiritual things and seeing it produce fruit and the salvation in the lives of others should give us the greatest joy there is. Again, I, it's going to be our perspective and what we truly value in life is going to you know, create the joy or the sorrow that we experience, that we feel. But again, these things are not really confined to or cannot be controlled by our decisions as so much 
they happen. And we respond. He says there's a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, all right? Um, a lot of different interpretations. Is this marring an enemy's field? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's the idea. But um, there, are the, there is the need for building materials, and there's a time to, to gather stones together for building building walls, building fences, whatever. And then there are also times to cast away and clear things out so that you can plant and do things that, that need to be done. So there's a time to gather and a time to cast away stones. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to receive people with open arms and there's a time to reject them and say, I'm sorry. As much as we may want to have a relationship with that person, their choices, their sins, will cause us and force us to say, I'm sorry. I cannot have fellowship with you as you are. Determined by the action of others, not us. We can't be friends with all the people that we would really like to be friends with. It's just the way it is. Because of their choices. There is a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Again, there are things worth searching for, and really that's the idea, a time to gain, a time to search out, to seek to gain. And then there are times in which we are to give up, to cut our losses, to admit we are failures. We've lost this battle. And there are battles that have to be left on the field. We have to walk away. Now, sometimes it's hard to determine when that time has come. You know, Jesus said, do not cast your pearls before the swine. Sometimes that time comes when we just have to Say, it's out of our hands. I can't do anything else. But some things we need to hold to and not let go regardless of what happens. Some things we need to get rid of. You know, young people listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. We ought to all be searching for good friends. But if you find friends who are ungodly, who do ungodly things, who do not have the love of God in them at all, those friends you need to push away. You need to get away. You do not need to keep such friends. You need to hold on to friends. You need to search for friends and find friends that will help you to encourage you to do what is right. You know, one of the biggest problems that people face or find themselves in, they find themselves in certain terrible situations and circumstances, 99.9% .9 of the time, if you begin to trace back where that person went wrong, you're going to find out that it was the point in which they chose to be friends with a certain group of people that led them the wrong way. Paul said very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 30, 33, Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good morals. The communication there has reference to do with your associates. When you associate yourself with wicked, evil people, ungodly people, they will destroy you. So there's a time to gain and a time to lose. There's a time to keep and a time to throw away. There is a time to tear and a time to sew. Of course, when you talk about garments, sometimes, you know, our, our garments, we need to protect them, we need to keep them, but what happens when they get so old that uh, they're no longer useful? It's time to throw them away. Um, but there's a time to tear. Of course, in the, in the Bible, we see people all the time tearing their clothes because of their sins and their grief and their circumstances that they rip their clothes in a, in a gesture of, of mourning or sorrow or grief. 
There are also times when it's important to mend our clothes, to keep our clothes. We live in a throwaway society, and that's not good. We ought to take better care of what we have. That, by the way, does, it does extend to our relationships, and it is manifested in our relationships. We live in a society where people are so quick to discard their God-given relationships, marriage in particular. There is never a time, never a time, in which it's okay to do that which is wrong. And to turn away from your duties and your responsibilities in those relationships. But, this principle applies to many things. A time to tear and a time to sow. You know what? Every relationship that is good, will find itself in some difficult moments of time. Every marriage is going to go through its hard times. No exception to that. What are you going to do in those times? Are you going to sew things back together? Are you going to do what's necessary to, to help the circumstance, to fix the situation? It is true, though, even in that relationship, there are things completely out of our control. Marriage takes two, not just one. There's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. <laughs> Many times it's much better if we just keep our mouths zipped. Don't say anything. And we see passage after passage that emphasizes that. And certainly when we are angry, we should not speak. We need to be quiet. When we are upset, we need to be quiet. When we have been wronged, we need not speak out of anger, but wait. Meditate on our thoughts and express them in a godly way. Our... Our responses so often in anger are going to be harmful instead of helpful. There's a time to keep silence. And one of the biggest things that we see in our day and time is people always, they're very quick to express their opinion about things. They're very quick to say you know, what ought to be done or what not ought to be done. And they don't have the slightest clue about what's going on. <laughs> they don't have a clue about what's really happening. We are so quick to speak when we haven't even heard the question yet. Um, we need to stop and think and understand things before we speak, okay? But then on the other hand, there are times when we must speak out. There are times when we must say something. That which is wrong, that is sinful, must be exposed. Ephesians 5 and verse 11. We are to expose those things that are wicked. So we must be. So you have a time when you should be silent, a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate. Well, all we hear today is love, love, love. Love, love, love. Nothing wrong with love. Of course, God is love. We must love. We must be a people of love. But listen, there is no such thing as true love when there is absolutely no hate for that which is opposed to that love. That is not true love if it does not hate that which is opposed to that love. Love is indeed the main characteristic of God. But we are also to hate the things that God hates. God hates. He hates sin. He hates wickedness. God hates the things that are opposed to His will. God hates divorce. God hates division. There are seven things that are an abomination to God. Proverbs chapter 6. We need to realize that God hates things. We ought to hate the same things that God hates. We must hate immorality. We must hate injustice. We must hate oppression. There's a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time of war and a time of peace. You know, we all wish that the world only knew peace. 
Peace, however, will never be universally possible. Never. You know why? There will always be sin in this world. There will always be wickedness. And as long as there is wickedness, there will always be war. There will always be battles to be fought. There will always be conflict. And in such conflicts, when you have right and wrong, good and bad, as opposed to each other, as we see so often in our day and time, we cannot remain passive. We cannot remain neutral. Peace sometimes simply is not possible. We're told in Jude in verse 3 to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We must contend for the truth. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 emphasizes as much as lies within you, live at peace with all men. That's not always possible. In Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 through 38, Jesus emphasizes because of darkness, because of sin, there will be wars. There will be problems. John 3 and verse 20, Jesus makes it very clear. It's because people hate the light. And they love wickedness. They love darkness. There will always be battles and wars. So these 14 contrasting conditions lead to this question that we get to in verse 14. Or, or lead in verse 9, I mean. The 14 contrasting quest, uh, conditions lead to this question. What profit has the worker then from all in that which he labors? This goes back to chapter 1 and verse 3 where the same question is asked. And again back in chapter 2, you know, Solomon looks at all the things that he's experimented with, all the things that he's done, and he says, okay, what's the benefit of this? What's the gain of all of this? The answer is always the same. Have you noticed that? Vanity. Worthlessness. It doesn't accomplish anything of real value. When you look at all that you do and all that you gain that is material and the things that you engage in under the sun, the final analysis is nothing. What profit have you from all these things? And all that we do, it all depends on times and seasons. A farmer plants, for example, he goes out and he works his field. He keeps, the, he keeps the, the weeds out. He takes care of it the best that he can. He waters it the best that he can. But then you have a drought. No control over that, but it happens. Or like this past season, we've had floods. I've got a friend, Jackie Prince. Uh, flooding was terrible this year. Fit, they couldn't get in to work their fields. Lost who knows how much money. It's just out of their control. But you work so hard and you try to do so much and it comes, to, comes down to you're powerless. There is no satisfaction or security in our efforts because we do not know what's going to happen. We have no idea, nor can we control what is going to happen. Yet time and chance happens to them all. All of our efforts to acquire things will eventually wind up worth, uh, worthless, waste of time. And yet we must work. That's one of the things that God gives to the sons of men. We are to be occupied with work. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, If a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. We must work. So then Solomon says, okay. Everything that we gain under the sun, everything that we accumulate is, is actually worthless. And all of our concern over these things, we're still bound by this time element that we don't, don't have any control over. We don't have any control over the circumstances. We do not control what we do or what we accomplish in reality. Then he backs off and he says, but he, God, has made everything beautiful in his time. Also has put eternity in their hearts. You know, everything is beautiful in its time, in its in its setting, it has a purpose. You know, fall and spring, summer and winter, beautiful in their own right. 
everything has its purpose and everything has its beauty. You know, you can go and you can look at the natural creations of God. You can see the beauty that God has made in this world. You go up to the Ozarks, you go up to Ponca, Arkansas. And you go out and you walk the Hawksbill Crag Trail and you come out finally to the point and you walk out over that gorge and you just look and you can see as far to the left as you can see. You can see down the Buffalo River where it begins. You can look out and you can see just... It's beautiful. You can look into the eyes of a newborn baby, an innocent child. Beautiful. You can look at a marriage that has endured years of hardship and struggles and trials and an elderly couple sitting together on the front porch. Beautiful. Beautiful in their own time. Now we think about the beginning and the wedding. How wonderful. That's just the beginning. Even the beauty of death. The righteous. That's beautiful in the eyes of God. How can these things be objectively considered without recognizing God as being behind it all? When we really have a... God-centered perspective on life. How does that change our life? And how, how we look at things. We have this deeply ingrained sense of purpose that God has put into us. He has put eternity in our hearts, right? We're made in the image of God. We have that within us. Man, inquisitively, intrinsically is inquisitive we are looking to find out answers to all the whys and the hows and many people try to squelch the the hunger to find God with just trying to stuff our time with things and stuff and thus we ignore the very purpose for which God has put this desire to find Him in our hearts. And when he talks about He has put eternity in our hearts, there is this longing in every one of us to answer the question, where did we come from? Where is God who made us? And in reality, we are incapable of finding out all the answers apart from divine revelation. And as much as we may search, as much as we may reason, apart from God's revelation, we're going to be completely in the dark. You know, you take an atheist who, who says, you know, in fact, I had one tell me just this week before last. He says, I can prove that there is no God. <laughs> I laughed. I said, no, you can't. That is absolutely impossible. But then he starts, you know, he, he talks about science. Science cannot answer the question of where this world began. That's a bunch of nonsense that they're teaching our kids. The earth all of a sudden just out of this one little beast piece of energy that was bound up in this little speck, this is the theory, at least it was advanced several years ago, that in this little, little speck of energy about the size of a pencil head, all of a sudden it exploded and we have all that we have. Now does that make sense to you? But yet they believe it. They believe that we human beings came from monkeys. Where did the monkey come from? Well, a monkey came from a squirrel or a raccoon or what? You trace it back. Here's the problem that every atheist is going to eventually have to answer, which they can't do. Where? In fact, there was this lecture where this the speaker was... Well, he, he, was, he was a creationist, and he had on the big screen behind him a picture of Mount Rushmore and how you know, magnificent that was and how much time all of that took and the intricate details of it. And everybody knows that that was not an accident, right? You have design clearly manifested. You have talent and skill exhibited 
on the face of that mountain where you have four presidents carved into it. You can see it. It's readily identifiable. You know that there is design. There is intelligence behind it. Then he uncovers another half of the screen which had a strand of DNA. Over three billion bits of information is found in that little piece of DNA that decides and determines everything about who you are and what you are in that little bitty piece of DNA. And you look at that, and that just happened? Not on your life did that just happen. But we see that, look, we, we began to dig, in fact, the deeper we dig, we look into the cell of a living thing, and we quickly come to realize how small we are. Man searches and searches and searches and never, never will be able to find out the works of God from the beginning to the end. And what God, and all of this, God wants us to recognize and understand that He is God. He does give us things to enjoy. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. Listen, in each moment of our life, we need to find contentment in that, joy in that, and live within that moment. You know, I told Justin he had his birthday party Saturday night or Friday night. And I told him, I said, you better really enjoy this one because now you're 13. And you're not going to have parties like this very much longer. People, you know what, the older that you get, the less you care about that. And the less you're going to get for your birthday too. <laughs> it, it, it's just, that's the way it is. Right? And by the time you get to be 25, I mean, who's getting you a birthday present then? You're married. Your wife's going to get you something nice. Your mama ain't getting you nothing. Your grandma and grandpa sure ain't getting you nothing. You're 25 years old. You can buy it yourself. That's, but that's the way it is. Enjoy where you are. Kids say, I want to get out of school. No. <laughs> Enjoy it. Because once you get out of school, what do you have to do then? you got to go to work. And then life gets hard. God wants us to enjoy, though, the moments that we have. But He never wants us to forget that He's the cause of those moments. He is the one who is sovereign over those moments. We miss the blessing so often because we fail to see the bigger picture. We fail to see that God is truly behind it all. And God wants us to enjoy life, of course, with self-control and in accordance with His Word. He tells us what's right and what's wrong. And if we do what's right, we will truly find joy in that. If we forfeit the blessings, then that's our, our, our fault. And many people do forfeit these blessings that we have because they worry about what they can't control. You know? We are... Always apprehensive and scared because we don't know the future. We miss the blessing because we fail to see the bigger picture. How everything changes for a person who truly trusts God as the creator, the sovereign creator and sustainer of this universe. When we trust Him and we give our lives to Him and we serve Him faithfully, how that changes everything. How sad it must be going through this life thinking there is no God and there is no purpose for life. There is nothing to live for. There is nothing to die for. There is nothing except the moment. And there is no purpose in that moment. How terrible a life that must be. But you know how many millions of people live that way every day? And they don't know the joys of what it means to trust God. God's will is immutable, verse 14, and we're done. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it. We, we can't change God's way. We cannot change the way things are. What it is, it is. That's all there is to it. We cannot control things that take place. But we can trust God because He is the one who is in control. And as it says, and nothing taken from it, God does it that men should fear before Him. We need to recognize who 
God is trusting. The beginning of the uh, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So we need to place our confidence in God. That which has been is always will, uh, that which has been already been and what will be has already been. You know, as much th- sometimes we look at things and we think, well, that's just all out of order. There's there's no no order in it, and that's really what an atheist wants to see when he looks at the world. He sees chaos, right? He sees disorder. But it really, you, he's not looking close enough. Because if you look close enough, everything that has been will be. It's just a continual cycle of things. Spring, summer, winter, over and over again. You have the continuation of things. However, if these events appear to contradict God's control... Wait a minute, back up and look at the bigger picture. And you can see very easily that God is certainly behind it all, in control of it all. Finding joy in life, finding purpose in life, depends upon certain things. First and foremost, it depends upon our trust in God Himself. We have to trust in the One who is truly over everything. And we must come to terms with our own limitations, our own inabilities, control everything. People who are proud and and, uh, assertive, they are controlling. They want to control everything, but the reality is we can't do that. And such a person is going to be miserable. We need to realize that we need to accept things as they are. To learn to enjoy the blessings that we have and to be thankful for what we have. To be content where we are, as Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 11. And what about our trust and our reverence for God? Respect Him. And realize that all things will indeed work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. Romans 8, 28. That is, those who are faithful, the end result will be what God has purposed for you. And that is salvation. If you will trust Him and follow Him. Now, there is no such thing as a sermon from the Old Testament that's worth anything unless you get to Christ because that's what it's all pointing to. Let me tell you something, my friend. Your fulfillment, your real purpose in life can only be found in Christ Jesus. Nowhere else. And if you're in Christ, then you have what God wants you to have. And all that God will give you is found in Him. And if you're not in Him this morning, I want to encourage you to be baptized into Christ and to be raised to walk in newness of life so that you can now have this new look and perspective on life that you now serve God and that you now are going to do the things in the time that He's given you to serve Him and be faithful for Him. And if we can help you and you're being baptized or whatever your need may be, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.